Hey, John, how are you? Hi, Dan. I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. Everything good up there? Everything going good? Oh, so good. Things yeah. are good. Yeah, things are good. It's, you know, it's good times. I saw that um, truck that you were talking about posting in your Instagram. Yeah, you know, it's very much like my truck, except on close inspection, it was um, it was totally tattered, like like they all are. Mm. Um, this one, you know, had been painted with house paint. It had really, rusty, yeah, it was rusty. Oh, that's not but good. It had been sort of patched over and then slathered with with various kinds of paint and it was a two wheel drive model, not a four wheel drive model, but it did have some interesting features that were very similar to mine. It had the, uh, the, the towing package, the trailer special trailering Mm -hmm. special, sure, which is, uh, you know, that's like the big heavy duty three quarter ton package. Right. And, uh, same, same year as mine. It was really, it was nice to see, but it's, uh, it's, they're also thrashed. That was why I was so glad to find mine, which wasn't thrashed. But then you realize, oh, it's a 40-year-old truck. It's like thrashed no matter. Yeah, how could it, how could it not be? How could it not yeah, be? Yeah, it's thrashed. It's thrashed. The only way it couldn't be is if some old man owned it and only drove it on weekends. And he was already old in 1979. <laughs> but that doesn't really sound like the typical owner of that kind of a truck. No, right? that's, not, that's not why you buy one of those. I mean, right. that's why you buy a Corvette. But you don't buy a, you don't buy a. Like Did you see that Corvette uh, image that I retweeted or, or reposted? I don't know if you're on social media, but it was a was ni- the, 1969 that had been given a, a like a canopy on the back. No, no, I'm looking right now. It's just somebody t- tweeted it and I retweeted it, and it was something I thought. You know, I don't know. I don't know what you do. I don't know if you no. see my feed at all, but oh, I see your feed. Dan. It's it's from the. I'm going to copy your feed is burned meat. Mm, all right. I'm pasting this into the chat and you can see that this is a 1965 Corvette Mako shark two. And I don't know if you have your oh, phone. Handy, I see. But it's a, uh, it's like a, uh, it's a, a custom, uh, like a, looks like it special custom jobby. Isn't that awesome though? Well, I, I do not see it. You sent it to me where? And your phone to your phone. You, oh, here it is. Let me see here. Oh, yes. Look at this. This is a very custom job here where they have given extra fiberglass to make it look even more like a shark. Mm -hmm. And then some very, very crazy (laughs) wheels off of a Lincoln Continental. It looks like it. And it's got the built-in side mufflers. Yeah, I feel. and this uh, this gal in the teal uh, cashmere sweater (laughs) is really getting off on it. Yeah. Right. And and it's in front of some super mid-century brutalist uh, house slash library. What more would you want than this? That style, uh, that style is, has never been my style. No. None of those. But, but recently, and this is, this is strange to say after a lifetime yeah. of feeling like mid-century modern was not a thing I was into at all, mm. personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it is that is that my relationship to it as a young person was that it was um, we lived in a neighborhood. My mom did that thing that you're supposed to do, which is she bought the cheapest house in a good neighborhood, right? 
back in 1972. And the neighborhood was a neighborhood called Innes Arden. And we lived outside of Innes Arden, but uh, we went to the same elementary school as Innes Arden. And Innes Arden was a neighborhood where it was a mid-century showcase neighborhood. All the houses sat on a third of an acre and they all had one-story floor plans with with exposed beams and big windows and sliding glass doors. And the parents all had Ames chairs. Mm-hmm. And um, so th- those were the houses that my friends lived in. And they also had stay-at-home moms that cut the crusts off the bread. And it was all... <laughs> Even though it was the early 70s, it felt a lot like the early 60s or the mid-50s. Right. A, a version of that kind of affluence. It was just that that they were wearing Lily Pulitzer pantsuits instead of whatever they would have been wearing in the in the 50s. Uh, probably hoop skirts. No, 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 not hoop skirts, but. Anyway, it never I never connected with that style. I always wanted Victorian. I always wanted lots of wood trim and stained mm. glass windows and towers and and staircases and um like haunted basements made of stone. But my daughter's mother is a is a real fan of mid-century modern and I also didn't like the last 10 years where what I what I always considered mid-century was anything built between 1951 and 1958 and a half. Okay. Right? That's the middle of the century. Right. And that became fashionable. And then what qualified as mid-century started to creep. And pretty soon houses from 1975 were being sold as mid-century modern houses, which they weren't. They were split-level houses. They were just suburban tract homes. They did not, you know, mid-century to me communicated a very specific style. Right. And it just expanded. And now any, you know, like shag carpet and, and, uh, the fucking banana splits on television suddenly is (laughs) mid-century and it's just not. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, my daughter's mother loves actual classic mid-century, 1952 houses that have a very unique and what I always thought was a chintzy style because it was very spare and it and it was without ornamentation. Mm-hmm. But in so she's been looking for a house for the last several years, and I go with her on these trips to go to open houses, and she sends me all these pictures like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And over time, I've learned enough of the vocabulary of mid-century houses by just looking at them over and over and going to these open houses and seeing like, oh, huh. I, in, an, in a photograph, I wouldn't have liked this, but standing in the room, it's, it's really nice here. And I've developed now a little bit of a of a vocab, and I'm finding my tastes are very slowly, gradually, but inexorably turning. Really? So that now I'm like, what about a mid-century lifestyle? Oh my god! Now I'm not even sure I know what that would mean for you. Well, I don't either. It's not, it is the opposite of what I am, right? I'm not, 
I am not clutter free. I am cl- I am a clutter. I am literally a clutter. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so I so part of the fantasy is sitting there thinking, what if I lived in a home where where not only is there no clutter, but like not even an oriental carpet is appropriate. Mm. Like none of the things are are appropriate. It's not just that, I mean, I could throw shelves into these places and fill them up with my college textbooks, but that wouldn't look right. And so, and and it would be like a, it would be a defilement of the, of the principle uh-huh. of it. And so like, I'm really, I've spent a lot of time recently just sort of chewing on the idea like, whoa, what if that, what if I just like had a house where I just roller skated around it and there wasn't anything in it except like two uh, Ames chairs, which are so uncomfortable that no one ever wants to sit in them. And one of those giant chrome lamps that, that like spans the whole room and, and a, and a huge fireplace in the center of the room that no one ever lights. Um, like what would life be like? But what I have never cared about was Corvettes. Mm. Um, and I'm not, and I, that's not to say that Cor- I ever associate Corvettes with mid century, but that Corvette that you just showed me is a kind of Corvette that, yeah, it's basically the banana splits. And even back to the 1950s, I feel like all Corvettes are the banana splits. Why? Did, did like a Corvette feature prominently in that show? No, no. Okay. Although there, there's something, and I think any car person would agree with me. There is something about Corvette mm-hmm. that from its inception was very specific and specifically targeted to a certain kind of person. Yeah. And if you are a Corvette person, then you think that they are great. And if you are anyone else, you don't think they're great. Um, my mom was in a sports car club in the early fifties and sports cars then were synonymous with European cars. There were no American sports cars. It wasn't a, it wasn't an idea. And in the fifties, because European sports cars were, were gaining in popularity uh, Ford came out with the Thunderbird and GM came out with the Corvette and all of the European sports car people were like, these are not sports cars. Like, what are you doing? This just stop trying. They were two seaters, <laughs> but they were American and they were, so they were made, they were too big and they were too bloated and, and almost immediately American car makers started throwing huge engines in them, which is not what European sports cars had. So I think from my mom, I always had a prejudice against, although she thinks the Thunderbird is a good looking car, Hmm. but it's more than that. It's there's something Corvettes became a thing of a certain kind of person that maybe rolls their cigarettes up in the sleeve of their t-shirt but no, not even no, that. No, I don't think it's so. Something else. It's something else. There's something. There's something pocket protectory about them. Mm. Um, there was a moment about six years ago, before I had the GMC RV, uh, 
before I ran for office when I was searching for something to do with my life. <laughs> and, um, and my friend Ben Harrison, with whom I do the, uh, the, the podcast Friendly Fire, Ben was working at Engadget at the time as a videographer. And they had a television show or a, like a video channel. You might know better than me. I don't, I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. Engadget made video content. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if they had their own thing or if it was just on their, like, if they had a YouTube for it. Or it was on their blog. Blog. Is that what yeah. you were about to say? Yeah, something like, like that. I don't know what they. But did. They, I mean, they yes, had, I remember their video. I remember their videos being very good, but I don't know if they had, like, if it was a regular weekly thing or what they did. I think it was, and and they had real money to spend. I mean, they made real videos, and Ben and. Um, uh, and like a little, we, we, we formed a little kind of production group mm, group is maybe a little strong. Um, but we started to, div- we started to s- s- throw some ideas around, I guess is what they, what they call it in the business about how do we, how do we make a show? And so Ben was the f- the the camera guy and his partner was a guy named Brian Heater who was the production guy. Okay. And the the three of us would get on the on the texts or on the phone. Mm-hmm. We would say, "What's our show?" And we kind of that the idea was that Brian would produce it, uh, Ben would film it, and I would be the host. And what we got down to was this show where we were going to go to. Forgotten American cities, mm-hmm. Poughkeepsie, and Warren, Ohio, and right. you know, like places that had formerly had a, a manufacturing boom of some kind in the in the nineteenth or twentieth century, and so had built like a vibrant little town, Peoria, right? I think if you go to Peoria, Illinois, now. The streets are lined with beautiful homes reflecting a time when Peoria was like the center of a certain universe. Right. Um, now, Peoria, you can buy one of those homes for $60,000 because who wants to live in Peoria? Right. So we would go to these towns and we would figure out when their high time was, what the big industry had been there. And there are, there are the towns all across America where it's like, well, you know, tie tax were really important <laughs> at a certain point. And the city that was famous for tie tax was, you know, elocution, Kentucky. <laughs> and, and so they built the fact, this is the old tie tax factory. And here's tie tax Hill where all the rich tie tax industrialists live. And, you know, and that's when they built the opera house and look here, the Carnegie library. But then people stopped wearing tie tacks because the, the self tacking tie was invented and the tie tack industry collapsed. And all of a sudden, you know, this town was, was, um, surpassed by self-effacement Tennessee where they make tack, you know, tack self tacking ties. And that whole story was really fascinating to me and 
And that's the kind of stuff that I love telling those stories, figuring out what the story is and then telling the story in an entertaining way. And, and I had all this, this vision about how we would, you know, we'd be able to go to the city. We'd, there'd be animation in the show where we could animate what the city once was and then kind of add on, take away and add on to these, um, landscapes, um, you know, all this sort of animated character. And then we would walk around the town and talk to people. We'd talk to the descendants of the old tie tackers. We'd talk to the, you know, and, and then we'd kind of like describe the decline of the town. Assume that, assume that they was, a, there was a nadir. And in a lot of cases, the nadir is now. And then at the end of the show, we would figure out like what was going to bring this town back. Oh, so like you would, you would analyze the situation and say, this is the thing that, that this, this will fix the town. Right. Here comes, or maybe this is an attempt to fix it. Like here comes Shinola and they're going to start making bicycles in central Detroit or right. here come, you know, there are four hipsters that moved in here recently and they're knitting tea cozies for trees. <laughs> right. You know, like this is maybe the, or maybe it's like an overarching idea of like return to small town America. You can live affordably in these places. And if you don't, you know, if your life is primarily digital, like Amazon can deliver anything here. And if you can revitalize these towns and make them pleasant places to live, you don't have to live in San Francisco anymore. You don't have to, your life doesn't have to be a constant battle with other people you can i mean i look at these towns all the time online because i'm because i i'm an obsessive but like you can buy a church you can buy not a church the church mm. in half of these towns and it and they were towns where at one point there were eight thousand people living there and they built a proper cathedral in the center of town that that you could hold that, that where the the main hall would hold 600 people and that church now is for sale for $85,000 and it's, and it needs some work, but not that much work. Now, why you would want to live in a, inside a huge church in the center of a town that now has 3,500 people that is, uh, there's a logic to these towns, right? They're not just built. They didn't just clear some forest and build a town. There was always a river. There was always a junction, you know, two rivers came together or there was a valley where there was water power enough to run a mill or there was always some reason to build there in the first place. And that reason still exists mm -hmm. if you just put your mind to it a little bit. You know, if you just think like, well, what, what would we use water power for today? Um, what could I, what could I get that water to drive now that electricity is cheap and ubiquitous? Why would I want to use water instead of just plugging it into the wall? Sure. And there are answers to those questions. And it, uh, meanwhile, in San Francisco, there are all these guys starting companies where it's like, we handcraft shoes. It's like, yeah, I know. I know. You know what? <laughs> like <laughs> shoes. I get it. Right. Like every third guy with a Macklemore haircut and a handlebar mustache seems to be starting a, a, like a boot company. It's like, we don't, you know what? Just buy Red Wings. We don't need more boots. We don't, nobody <laughs> needs $700 <laughs> boots that were handcrafted by hipsters. Like 
go to go to these little towns and open a mill, open like a water mill that's that's I don't know what milling heritage grains. I don't care. Something interesting, right? I think about this a lot. Anyway, this would be the show. And before I had a GMC RV of my own, I thought, here's the show. We'll get a GMC RV mm. and and we'll drive around the country like um like the Hulk, basically. <laughs> or or uh or Shazam. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and um <laughs> you know, or morally safer or whatever. And in the in the 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 RV will be my squad, right? We'll have Ben Harrison filming. Um, I'll have an assistant who wears her hair in a bun and has horn rim glasses and is carrying a clipboard and is always telling me something that I forgot. Uh, and there'll be like a kid with headphones on and a laptop who's always on the computer and is solving crimes and is rewriting the encryption. <laughs> and you know, like I'll have a team. <laughs> right. No, I get, right? I can see this. I very like clearly a, can see it. A very diverse little team of millennials who are like my squad. And then out in front of the RV, I will be driving a T-top Corvette. And we will drive across the country. The Corvette and then the chase team of the GMC RV. And on the on the roof of the GMC RV, I, I pictured some some dishes, like some satellite dishes and stuff, just okay, to make it really sure. look like kind of teched out. And the and the Corvette is just gonna be because I don't really like Corvettes, but it's like a certain kind of F U to the world. And I was hoping that the Corvette would maybe have like primer patches on it, like like it it would be a ratty Corvette. Not a slick one, like a like a like a like a shit Corvette. And it turned out that I think um Tiffany Armand uh, internet superstar mm-hmm. contacted me and said her father had one of these Corvettes and it was for sale. And did I want to buy her dad's old Corvette? Oh, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't though. Well, so I said, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> but just give me a few days to get it all lined up. Right. And we were frantically trying to put this whole idea together. But the problem is none of us were actual um, put-the-idea-together people. That's a certain kind of job, a certain kind of person. It's like 5 by Five's uh, famous Hattie. Oh, yeah. Your Han- handles everything. Right? Would you agree? Would you, oh, yeah. Is she somebody that would put something like that together? Yeah, she'd put all that together. She'd make all that yeah. happen. She's, right. already, See, she's, she's listening right now. She's already got it halfway done. See, I don't have a Hattie. Yeah. Life. I don't even have a Hallie. Right. Right. If I even, I don't even need a Hattie if I just had a Hallie. <laughs> that's so a, I don't have one of those. Right. You, like a, like a cheap copy of a Hattie. Yeah. Right. If it was a, like a lesser, a lesser Hattie. Right. But even, and I'm not saying uh, to any Hallies who are listening, I'm not saying that you're necessarily a lesser <laughs> Hattie. I just don't even like Hattie is the, is the, uh, the pinnacle. Right. Then, right. So we didn't have a, a Hattie or a Hallie. Uh huh. So no one ever put it together and, and, uh, and Tiff was like, are you going to buy this Corvette or not? We got to put it on the market if you're not. Oh, so this, this happened. It wasn't just that they had one. They had one. They were trying to move. 
Yeah, they were yeah. like, we're going to sell this. And I heard that you're thinking about getting a Corvette. Right. And I was like, oh, man, come on. We can't let this opportunity slip through our fingers. But the problem was everyone we talked to about that show that was in the show business uh, said, oh, yeah, that's uh, really interesting. That sounds like a great show. No one would watch that show. Mm. And I was like, but, 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 but. And the answer was, look, this happens all the time. And, th- and, and my good friend, Christine Connor, who does make shows said at one point, she said, I see this a lot, which is people saying, here's what, um, here's what the people who watch TV need. And the thing is that most of the people that say that type of thing don't actually watch TV themselves. <laughs> So there's this whole class of people who don't watch TV who think that they know what people who watch TV want to see. Sure. And what would be good for them. And, and she had me dead to rights, right? I was like, but the thing is, if this was on TV, then TV would be better. And she was like, that's not how TV works. You don't put (laughs) things on TV that make it better. You put things on TV that people will watch. And that tends to be, um, house makeover shows mm-hmm. uh shows where people are singing and dancing and being judged and um like the history shows are all about either shooting guns or uh old guns guns of the past mm-hmm. uh future guns <laughs> yeah or maybe you nailed U- it maybe ufos she said nobody wants to watch some a weird hipster drive across the country in some weird old cars trying to figure out why weird old towns don't still make hat pins. I was like, Oh man. She was like, go ahead and make your show, put it on the internet. Maybe some nerds will watch it. But you know, she's like, you already have all your nerd shows that, you know, that all like capped out at 25,000 listeners. It's not like, it's not like the world is dying to hear your weird thoughts. It's, you've got some weirdos that listen to your thing. You're not, you know, if you were blowing up the world already, maybe we could pitch a show like that where it was like Adam Savage's new show about driving around. But Adam Savage is too smart for that. He knows that nobody would watch that. And his new show is about blowing stuff up just Mm. like his last show because blowing stuff up, People love to watch things get blown up. They do. And guns and Hitler and house makeovers and apparently singing. I don't understand why that is so popular, but there it is. Anyway, so then I ended up buying a GMC RV on my own, which was a failed experiment. But thank goodness I didn't buy a Corvette. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't really imagine you in a Corvette of any kind. I feel like the Corvette is the worst Seattle car of all time, but it would be a great Peoria, Illinois car. Mm -hmm. There's so many things in the world that only work in Peoria. For instance, (laughs) I have always loved choppers, chopper motorcycles. Yeah. Certain kinds. There are a lot of choppers that I, that I don't think are good. There are a lot of like any which way but loose choppers that I would I would back over. I would knock them over with my car if I could. But there are some choppers that I really want to – I've always wanted. But you can't have a chopper in Seattle. You'd have to be an f- absolute idiot. Because of the weather? Why? 
Well, it rains here all the time, and right. it's, Seattle is built on seven hills like Rome. So <laughs> here you are. Just like Rome. You're, you're parked. You know, the light turns red, and you stop, and you're on James downtown, and the hill is basically a 45-degree slope, and the street is completely wet, and it's also downtown street, so it's covered with oil. It's wet, covered with oil, and at 45-degree angle, and you're stopped at a stoplight. Right. You're going right and down you're on the a, hill. And you're on a chopper. Yeah. Like, you couldn't stop, but I'm, it's just to be insane. You couldn't drive a chopper downtown. But if you lived in Peoria, where it's just flat for 1,000 miles in every direction, you could be riding choppers all the time. You could be, you'd have a Corvette. You'd have a chopper. You'd have a GMC RV. You would have a barn so full of, like, insensible audience uh, audio uh, what am i saying audios autos automobiles auto auto drivers mm-hmm. but here the only thing the only thing to the only vehicle to have in seattle now is one of those little electric powered two seat like future cars and even that is dumb really you should just travel by hot air balloon here yeah so, oh, fast forward to the present. I'm, I'm still thinking about doing a TV show with Ben. We're just trying to come up with the, the hook that is going to get it over the line into America's lap. Because I don't watch TV. I don't know what America wants and I don't care. And that's the problem. But, but a listener proposed a novel hook, which is that we go to these small towns and investigate their contribution to the early history of rock and roll. Cause there are all these little towns like where the, you know, where did Screamin' Jay Hawkins come from? I mean, they didn't all come from New Orleans, right? They're mm-hmm. from these little towns mm-hmm. in Mississippi and Alabama and up uh, Texas. So many rock and rollers from Texas. You go to Lubbock, Texas and do a whole episode of a TV show just about the town and its relationship to rock and roll. Because Lubbock is one of the most conservative towns in America. Right? Like they don't believe that you should be able to walk outside without a head covering because it might offend God. <laughs> right. Yes. But also it's where Buddy Holly is from. Right. And for years and years and years, I think they didn't even erect a statue to Buddy Holly because not, not because of like the way he died or anything, but he, he just was rock and roll. He represented um, like uh, like taboo rhythms to them, which is hilarious. If you think about buddy Holly, he, he does not, he does not exactly convey, um, like sexual, like unrestraint. No, but he's not, he's not sort of an, an Elvis type. No, but the people of Lubbock were like, Whoa, we don't endorse this kind of this kind of jungle music. <laughs> I can see that, and so that's a great story, right? So you so you get the RV, you get the Corvette, you drive around, but you're telling rock and roll stories. 
The only problem with that is that that is a great idea, but the hook is that the host is George Thorogood or the, or the, or he, the hook is that the, you know, that it's somebody who ever made a dime in music and not like some gray beard hipster, uh, podcast guy who's like, Hey everybody, here we are in Mississippi looking up the history of rock and roll. Like it was just, uh, it's a great idea, but but you have to have already drunk the Kool-Aid on me, which is a thing that not that many people have done. They're, they're, the people who have done it are like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. But most people haven't, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate that more people haven't, haven't come to the yard to drink my milkshake. But that, that's, that, that's where we are, Dan, as a culture yeah, and yeah, people. Yeah. We would like to thank Beachbody On Demand. This is an easy-to-use streaming service that gives you instant access to a wide variety of super effective workouts you can do from the comfort of your living room 24-7. This is the company behind P90X, Insanity, I'm not making these up, 21 Day Fit, T25. There's one called Brazil Butt Lift, which now I feel like I need to do that one. Hip-Hop Abs, Three-week yoga retreat. If you're hearing these titles and you think they are, they sound kind of crazy. They are, but they're, they're a lot of fun. And there are so many different programs that you can pick that will help you get into the kind of shape that you want to get into. I was actually just reading an article over the weekend that was talking about how so many people go into a gym and they don't know what to do. They try to do it by themselves and they either wind up overdoing it or hurting themselves or both. And then guess what? They don't go back. They don't do it again because you're not ready for, you know, going to a gym or maybe you are ready for it, but you don't know what to do. And that's the problem. So many people have, they say, I don't, I don't know how to get started or I can't fit a class into my schedule or I have these goals and they seem unattainable. and I just don't know how to begin. This is where Beachbody On Demand really, really shines. Again, you're doing this in the comfortable room that you set up for your own. It's, it could be in your hotel room. It could be in your house. It could be in front of your living room TV, whatever it is that you want to do, whenever you want to do it. Uh, you could do it on your own schedule. The workouts, they're as short as 10 minutes. And of course, there's some that go for an hour. It's up to you. Again, this has to fit and work in your schedule, and that's what makes them awesome. So many different options for you. Many of them don't require any extra equipment at all. And think of it in the time that it takes you to like drive and park at the gym. You could be finished working out. You can watch these on your computer, on your like smart TV, tablet, smartphone, your Roku, Apple TV. They've got an app for all those for your Chromecast. It's so easy to do this. And there's over a million people that are currently on Beachbody on demand. Now you can just go and sign up for this. Instead of me telling you, go to a website and sign up and put in the thing. You text the word roadwork to 303030. That's 303030. So you open up your messages app or whatever you use. Text the word roadwork to 303030. And they'll tell you what to do. We've got a whole bunch of people who are like skeptical of this. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. It works. And then they send you everything you need to know. You can get started. And then you've got this free trial. I've been using this trial uh, and then I switch to regular membership because I'm finding that this is super convenient for me. And there's stuff that you can do on there with your kids. 
your spouse. There's stuff for young people, old people, in between people. You name it, they have a program that's going to fit for you. So again, check it out. Send Roadwork to 303030. And uh, you'll get the free trial. And I hope you love it. Hope you like it as much as I do. Thanks very much to Beachbody On Demand for making this show possible. I am considering buying a mid-century modern house. I'm considering putting selling selling your own house, selling this house, getting rid of all my weird ephemera, all my Victoriana, taking down all of the crazy nautical flags and and placards that I stole from the Berlin subway stations in 1988 mm-hmm. and putting it all, I don't know what, into a pyre. I, what I would say is I'd sell it on the internet, but I, we both know that's never going to happen. Or maybe it will. Maybe, knows, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it will. I've got 10 pairs of red wing boots in the basement, all size 12D, all ready to go onto the eBay. I've been and talking the, about this for forever now. I know I need, you know what I need? I need a Hattie, but what I'll settle for is a Hallie, but I I don't have either. You know, Hmm. I'm just, every time I say that too, somebody, somebody writes me and is like, I'll be your Hattie Hallie. Mm -hmm. And then I don't even have a Hattie Hallie to reply to the email saying, thank you for your email. I just sit and stare at it and I go, Oh, you're not, you're not incapable of, uh, re- replying to email. I've seen you write really in-depth emails. Putting stuff on eBay is easy. Yeah, I know. I, I just know. sold. I just sold probably three hundred, four hundred bucks worth of stuff on eBay just last week. Just yeah. stuff. I cleaned out my garage and I like went old, like used T-shirts and stuff. Not old used T-shirts. <laughs> Said like Dan Benjamin, uh, like Meetup nineteen ninety eight. No, I. Uh, I, you know, a lot of it was like old audio equipment, old computer stuff, um, some shoes, you know, stuff like that. People want it. They're, they're dying for it. Watches, a couple watches. Yeah, I know you like selling those watches. Uh, I, know, I sold some, I know. some, uh, Nintendo stuff. My son had a couple games that he didn't, he'd like, we'd bought and he played and was done with, put them up there, sold them. So now my thinking is so easy. It's so easy, John. I would love you. You'd be a millionaire if you sold the stuff that you have just because it was yours. I have all these wool jackets and all these. Yeah, put them up there. Boots, but the problem is it's May now. Nobody wants that stuff in May. They all want it in September. Yeah, you're right. That's why you you shouldn't do it. They want it in September. You don't want to buy a wool jacket at the start of summer. I think if you put it up there, it would still sell. Yeah, maybe that's what I think. Well, so I might have to do this because how am I going to fit all this stuff into my new mid-century modern house that I'm going to get? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the thing about that, though, is in order to get a mid-century modern house in Seattle, I have to move further away from Seattle. This is the there, – there are a lot of different people now who are uh, moving out of Seattle mm-hmm. and the – the people who have the the loudest sort of um, complaint are the ones that can no longer afford to live in Seattle, which is basically everybody who's not rich. But there's a there's a lot of strum and drong about the fact that Seattle is 
you know, becoming too expensive like San Francisco before it. And I think Austin, this is happening too. Uh, and New York before that, where it's just like, oh, wow. If you didn't buy a house back when they were $80,000, 27 years ago, you're not going to buy a house. You can't be a millennium and buy a house unless you work at Amazon or unless you're a tech millionaire. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of resentment against tech millionaires because uh, they are the only ones that can afford to live here. Now, the the argument, the somewhat specious argument is that the tech millionaires have just bought up all the houses and pushed everybody else out. And that's not really the problem because Seattle has, there's a hundred thousand new people living here that didn't used to live here. Yeah. And Seattle has done a very, very, very bad job of building enough new construction to house these people, largely because Seattle is suspicious of building and has for decades made it very difficult to build, uh, expensive to build. They've zoned it so that it's hard to build. And then the sort of activism in politics here thinks that builders are the enemy. And so they, they, they insert all kinds of extra restrictions and taxes on builders and on business because we're a progressive country and that's our reaction to capitalism. So there's not enough, there aren't just aren't enough places for people to live. And of course the rich people price the poor people out and the poor people are mad. And obviously for some of them have good reasons. Some of them don't, but we're watching Seattle destroy its community, just like San Francisco and New York has never managed to destroy itself as many times as it's tried. You might be seeing it in Austin. Is there an argument in Austin that Austin is losing its culture? Yeah, I think, but I think that that's, that's like an ongoing discussion for sure right. here. And it is in Seattle, but like when I was a young musician in the nineties, my practice space, uh, I had my own standalone practice space in the center of Capitol Hill. We paid $300 a month for it. It had enough space in there for all of our stuff. Plus some couches. We had Christmas lights. We could go there 24 hours a day. I had an apartment two blocks away. That was 1300 square feet. And I paid $300 a month for it. Yeah. And I worked at a job where I worked four days a week and I made $980 a month. And so I had my $300 rent. I paid one quarter of the $300 rent for the band space and the rest of the money I spent on cigarettes and hamburgers, Mm -hmm. you know, like, (laughs) and I didn't, I didn't have to, there was no struggle. The struggle was all emotional. Like, how do I make my art, which is the kind of struggle that you want to have when you're young, not how do I afford to live right. another month? I'm working right. 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week. I can't afford an apartment. But then there's another group of people moving out of Seattle, which are the middle-aged people who aren't rich mm-hmm. and who don't want to live in an apartment anymore. And it's not that it's just that they have grown up. They're just too old to live. They want, you know, they have kids, they want a yard. They want, it's the, it's the, the movement of the middle aged out of the cities and into a place where, where you can have a dog. And I think that used to be easier to do. It was a natural river of people 
that sort of were like, well, I'm going to turn my cool downtown apartment over to the next generation of 25 year olds. And now I've got a kid and we're going to move to a house. But in order to do that, because 10 years ago, that's kind of what I did. I bought a house here in the suburbs. But if I sold my house now, I wouldn't be able to buy a house. I certainly couldn't get any closer to town. And so now that I've got this idea, like, I want a different life. I want a different life, Dan. Mm -hmm. Something else. Something where I'm not surrounded by oriental carpets anymore. But I have to move out of Seattle to accomplish it. Right. And I don't want to go all the way to Peoria. So I'm like, I'm out in these, in these weird suburbs driving around looking at these houses and thinking, could I live out here? Like they're, they're dogs and birds on lawns here. Is that a, is that a thing for me? I always have I've been oriented toward the city since since I first became an adult. I'm gonna am I gonna be oriented toward some large grocery store with a huge parking lot around it? Is that gonna be the center of my because you see people like that, right? That they go to the grocery store every morning for their coffee and they are there at the grocery store coffee shop and all their friends are there too, and that's the place, that's the gathering spot for your neighborhood. Sure. The big grocery store that has a bunch of olives in an olive bar. I just got some olives uh, on Saturday from the olive bar. Yeah, could that be me? Could I could I start yeah, patronizing a place with a olive bar? Why not? Well, I mean, you I can know. do you can do whatever you want. Well, I can't because what I want is to drive around the country in a Corvette with a GMC RV chase oh, vehicle. Not, yeah, but like that would be much easier for you to do than for me to do. What's holding you back? Nobody in America wants it. I don't want to. I don't want to cram it down their throats. I know I'm going to get tweets from people that are like, I want that show. But those people aren't going to quit their jobs to become part of my street team. Right. It's like all the people in Australia that listen to these shows. and They're like, come to Australia. It's like to entertain you and your 11 friends. Like there's not Australia doesn't want me either. I feel like I feel like you would feel different if people were like fun, like pumping money into the Patreon. Oh, yours and mine? Yeah. Like then you, if, if you were seeing like influx of money into that, then you'd say, well, I feel like now we could like it, like we real we really have listeners. We have true, true listeners, true fans, people who are really supporting our, our art that is this show. Well, people are a mystery to me because I see the numbers that, that uh, the download numbers that you and I have, mm-hmm. I see the download numbers that Merlin and I have and the ones that. Uh, people are listening to Friendly Fire, my war movie podcast, and people are listening to on- Omnibus with uh, television's Ken Jennings. Mm-hmm. I see the numbers, but I get tweeted at by the same cast of 30 to 40 people who are my regulars, who reply to the things I do. They mm-hmm. they they favorite my Instagram posts. They leave funny comments. I pretty much know them all. Um, the ones that listen to this show that also comment, like I, I, I have what you would, what you would kind of call your internet, uh, friend society. I'm, I'm, I'm 
naturally predisposed to them. I'm never going to flame them unless they say something really dumb. Right. They're just, they're the people that populate my neighborhood. But by, uh, by the, by the figures that you show me, the download figures, there are many, 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 many thousands of people who listen to the shows. But those many, many thousands do not reveal themselves. If, if I were to say right now, everyone who's listening to this show, just take two, two minutes and tweet me. Well, it's not even two minutes. Mo- many of them maybe don't have a Twitter account, although that seems no, they all do. They all do. But, you know, take 30 seconds, open your thing, tweet me. Now, how many tweets am I going to get? I'm going to say less than a hundred. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to say 50, but I just said that to a group of people that, that you can show me there are 30,000 of them. So that means that 29,950 of those people are like, yeah, no. Or they're listening to this barely. It's like playing in the kitchen and they're in the bathroom while they're cleaning. Or they're listening to it as they go to sleep at night and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Or whatever. I don't know. Or they're driving in their car or something. But the listener engagement, particularly for something so intimate as this, where it's like we're just right in, in your ears. Like it's it's just me. It's not – I'm not a – I'm not a uh, – I'm not Rob Halford of Judas Priest. I'm not an untouchable god of rock. It's just Dan Benjamin and me and Hattie. Like, go, you know, just go ahead, send a, send a little hello. Let us see that you're there. Uh, and uh, even with this, even having spent five minutes on this, get about I'll probably get 35 to 50 tweets. So it's a strange, it's a strange thing to to try to apprehend like what is the um what is that relationship because uh, you know i'll bump into somebody on the coming through the rye and they say i listen to your show and i go no way i never would have guessed that you did oh yeah yeah i listen to it all the time oh wow that's cool you never would have said that we would have met we i know you and yet you wouldn't have brought that up unless it was a certain special circumstance that it, that it seemed appropriate to bring up. But like, what, what are, what are we doing? And I, I often think like, Oh, it's a community. We're making a community. It should feel like that. But the community does not think of itself as a community, right? It doesn't organize around, a, a community principle. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very solitary relationship, and most of the people who are listening are like, right, I'm listening in on this. Like this isn't directly speaking to me. I'm just overhearing this, and so I'm not engaging with it because I'm not one of those people that's like, like in bed with these dudes. I'm I'm a like a um, eavesdropper Mm -hmm. and the eavesdroppers don't tweet 
The eavesdroppers are busy tweeting about their dogs or about their dinners. They're not, they're not doing that engagement because they, uh, they see themselves as, as a different kind of, um, a different kind of consumer, a take it or leave it consumer. Although I think if I, if I said something outrageous, I would get, I would get some angry tweets, but so often what happens there is that someone will take it, excerpt it, put it out on the internet and you end up getting angry tweets from people that have never heard the show and don't know who you are. Right. Who are just in the game of being out there, being outraged and sending angry tweets to people. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There is no Manchurian candidate here. We do not have, uh, our listeners are not an, uh, an army waiting to be activated. They are each one like a, like an individual that feels a kind of, uh, connection, maybe, maybe largely like a, um, like, like friendly at one remove. Somebody said they're sitting in a cafe and they're listening to you and me talk at the table next to us and going, Oh my God, listen to these right, guys. Listen, right, to these right. ding- listen to these. That's dinglings. right. That's what we're going for. <laughs> but that's, you know, over time, if you've been listening to a show like this for more than a year, like you, you know, the people, right. You know me, you know, Dan, like we're not, uh, we're pretty revealed. So to keep doing it, you gotta, gotta like us or even if you love to hate us, you still love, it's still a kind of like, I got to get my dose of this. Got to get my dose of this. Like these two dinglings talking in a cafe about mid-century modern houses, which they don't know anything about. And I happen to be an expert. What's crazy is so friendly fire of the four shows that I have friendly fire has the smallest listener base so far. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good show, but we did a show on a film about the Algerian um, independence movement in the fifties and sixties. And two different people replied on the Reddit, both of whom were film scholars focusing on the films of the anti-colonial era. One of whom was actually married to a woman who had written a book on the French Algerian relationship. And both of them just ripped into our take on this movie because this movie is a seminal object of like cinematic studies, Mm. French cinema studies, which is, which is a cult all its own, right? The French cinema and the relationship with Algeria. Like it's, it it brings people out of the woodwork, but here are two people engaging with this podcast who started out watching it just because it was like, Oh, they're going to watch from here to eternity. But it turned out we, we got that close to them, like landed that close to their wheelhouse that they basically one of them wrote out the like his he basically rewrote his thesis 
in the form of a Reddit comment um, where you're like, Hey, <laughs> you know what? Like I haven't watched this movie the 60 times that you have, and I don't currently teach it to undergraduates. So I'm not going to be quite as like laser sharp on some of this stuff as you are, but also like their, you know, their take on it was very ideological. Um, it's like anytime you mention Israel or Palestine, you're going to get somebody who comes in there who feels like they have all the facts and their opinion about, about Gaza is one that you cannot refute because they have all the facts. And these guys had this too. They were just like, you, you misread the film entirely. And it's like, well, or it's a movie and you think it means something. Our show, yours and mine, it's both it's both personal and yet you could listen to it pretty impersonally. Mm-hmm. All these problems are like they belong to these people. They're not. Every once in a while you're like, oh yeah, I kind of think that too. But like there's that, there's that one remove, there's that distance. All of which is to say that none of that translates to people who are going to tune into the discovery channel to watch a show about that is essentially basically just me driving a Corvette. That would be the <laughs> real premise of the show. <laughs> right. I'd be going to Poughkeepsie. I'd be talking about the history of Lubbock, Texas and rock and roll, but it would really be about those shots of the Corvette disappearing over the top of the hill when the sun is going down. Yes. That would be like, it'd be like the end of every episode. All right. On to the next town. And all the like, all the Hatties and Hallies running to get in the RV to catch up. On we go. Wait up, boss. Time waits for no man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's just not, it's just not the same as being George Thorogood. It's not the same as starting a show like that and saying like, I'm bad to the bone. Two thumbs up. Trademark. 